This is going to be a short week for a lot of people and you might be traveling. What a perfect time to get caught up on podcasts. This week we have Craig Stanland, a great dude in fraud for our guest. You know I like to interview people who have been on the other side, so to speak. I am picky, however, and I really want to hear the personal side of their experiences, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Craig does a wonderful job of his personal experience and has written about it in his book, Blank Canvas. The link is in the show notes. This book is so incredibly personal. I always read books before I interview a guest, and his was a great read. We were connected by Jeff Grant, who you have listened to, hopefully, in episode 39. This past week, I took a much-needed break and got to read and listen to podcasts at a beautiful beach. A new podcast I am listening to is the Criminology Academy. Sally Simpson was a guest on episode 32. I hope to have her on this podcast. Such interesting work, and she used to live in Oregon. Small world. Also, episode 30 with Wim Wiseman was fantastic. The ACFE Nashville chapter made my day by including Great Women in Fraud as one of their top five podcasts. What an honor. Stay tuned to Bad Blood, The Final Frontier, because Elizabeth Holmes is testifying this week. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Let's get started. We are back on Great Women in Fraud, and this week is a great dude in fraud, Craig Stanland. And as I said, I asked him before, he is one of my felon friends. And, you know, my felon friends are the only ones that have gone back across the line and are doing really good substantive work. So welcome to Great Women in Fraud, Craig. Kelly, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Can I make one request? Can we just do FF for short? Sure. We'll just abbreviate that. And I'm just the, I'm the FF. Okay. (laughs) I like that. It's kind of like BFF, but it's FF. So that's awesome. We start with a speed round. Um, Mac or PC? Uh, PC. Oh, you know what? That is interesting because the first times I started the speed round, it was all Mac. And now PC has totally caught up, I think. So I joke that I better sell my Apple stock. Um, (laughs) What is the best money you have spent personally or professionally? That is actually an easy one for me. Toastmasters. My Toastmasters membership. It was my first, let me think, my first payment to that was it included the extra 20 for the membership um, processing. But I think all total, it came out to about $80 for six months. That hands down was the best investment I have ever made. Okay. Not an attorney, huh? (laughs) That didn't even, even now that you've said it and put it on my radar, it's still not even on my radar. (laughs) That is so funny. Okay. So who is a famous crook or cop that you would like to go have happy hour or lunch or tea with? Oh, that is an interesting question. You know, honestly, I would like to have lunch with him. And unfortunately, this is an impossibility. But the agent that arrested me, um, he passed a couple of years ago, which was really sad. He had apparently cancer, um, just a couple of years older than myself. I'm 48. and, And I feel terrible about that. But I really think that would be an interesting person to go out with and just to get a little deeper perspective of his side of the case and what he saw. You know, I think that would be fascinating. Oh my God, that would be so incredibly fascinating because like, I mean, I was a federal agent and there's there's a couple people who I, who I think probably wanted to see what, you know, 
how we got it, how like it, that's, that is really good. I like that. Oh my gosh. Ah. And then finally, what either keeps you up at night or on the more positive gets you up in the morning? Let's go with what gets me up in the morning. And that would be writing. That would be writing. I love the act of writing. I love the art of writing. It is one of the most joyous experiences of my life when a sentence just comes together. There are just times, and it sounds so simple and easy, but sometimes there's a sentence that just, it just flows and I write it and it, it hits a chord inside of me. And I love that. And that's what gets me up. I write for about two hours every day, every morning. That's about my max. After that, I just start putting out drivel. I mean, who knows? The, the beginning portion, the first two hours could be drivel as well, but it really turns to drivel after two hours. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Yeah, the, well, and in your book, you talk about it. You liked writing as a child. Absolutely loved it. I, I so connected with it. I loved storytelling and just being able to, to create new worlds. Um, one of my favorite books still to this day, I actually just reread them, are the Chronicles of Narnia you know, the C.S. Lewis, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And that just, that opened up my, my mind and my eyes to what is possible with the written word. And I loved writing as a child, but it just loses its momentum to the responsibilities of adulthood. You know, how can you support yourself as a writer? How, you know, it's such an impossible thing to do. And this was also way before self-publishing and just the ability to you know, pump a book out by yourself and not have to go through an agent and be published. But so yeah. that's it. I, you know, I just, I lost it, but then in prison plenty of time and writing really helped save my life, you know, to reconnect with that. It really, it genuinely helped save my life. So why don't you tell the audience your sort of story as to how you got to prison and what you've done since then, because I haven't, you know, set it up, teed it up for you quite so well. I'll do the, the 40,000 foot view uh, for everybody. So what I like to say in, in September 30th, 2013, I had pretty much it all. I owned multiple homes. I drove all the nice cars, had a beautiful and amazing wife. I had the career, you know, I wore five figure watches, went to all the nicest restaurants in Greenwich, Connecticut and Manhattan. And then on October 1st, 2013, I lost it all. That's the day that I was arrested by the FBI. For just under a year, I committed fraud against one of the largest technology companies in the world. I found an opportunity to exploit their warranty policy for my financial gain. And it was, I've used the word in the past loophole, but I don't want to call it that. It was just, um, it was more an exploitation that I was able to identify. And I, and I found it and I ran with it until I you know, got called up by the FBI on October 1st. And that is when everything really came crashing down. I pled guilty to one count of mail fraud because I was guilty. And I was sentenced to two years of federal prison, three years supervised release, and an order of restitution in excess of $800,000. I really lost everything. I lost my homes. I lost my marriage lost any money I had. But more importantly than that, I lost my identity. I had become so inextricably interwoven with my things and my ability to buy those things. Now that I didn't have them, I didn't know who the hell I was. 
other than the man who destroyed his life. And I hated that man. And it led to a great deal of shame. And that shame grew to a point where I started to plan how I would kill myself. And I was really, really fortunate that a visit inside prison from my best friend of 30 plus years turned my life around to what I'm doing now, which is I call myself a reinvention architect. I help people who want to reinvent their lives. Not only people who hit rock bottom, who maybe have been justice impacted, but people who actually what I call like pre-choice Craig, before I made the choice to commit a crime, you know, I had all this stuff, but I didn't have passion and purpose and meaning and fulfillment. And I sought those things through materialism. And it's just a very empty existence. So I work with high performers, C-level executives and vice presidents who find themselves at that place and they don't know what the hell to do. They want, they've, they've reached this point that they, they want to fill that success-sized hole that's in the middle of their chest. And it's just unbelievably rewarding work. And I also, um, I have my book out and I do speaking. And it's just, I mean, it is such a polar opposite of what I used to do. And let me tell you, I don't make nearly as much money as I used to make, but my happiness quotient is exponentially higher. Well, you said, okay, there's a couple of things there that I just have to highlight. First off, you said pre-choice Craig. Now, I just had on the podcast, Dr. Emily Homer, who is a criminologist, and she did work in the prison supervision. And one of their things, the big thing is it was a choice. A lot of people who don't accept my non-FFs who don't accept, there was a guy recently on um, LinkedIn and, you know, he's a, he's a felon and he said mistake. And I was like, oh no, dude, uh-uh, you're not, you're not allowed to say mistake. And you said pre-choice. So I really want to highlight that because as the criminologist, who's a real criminologist says, words matter. And you didn't say it was a mistake. You said that it was an opportunity, which is part of the fraud triangle. But I, yeah, that is, that is huge. And then, you know, I, the way you say that also, I picture you living this kind of monk-like existence just because you understand now, because you understand that that stuff didn't make you happy. So a couple of things there. Thank you for um, picking up on choice. And I want to actually address that really quickly. So there was a, there was a time period where I used the word mistake. Ooh. I used the word mistake. There was a lot of finger pointing at other people. There was, again, that word mistake. And then one day I just had, it was inside prison. I had this epiphany where I realized all these things that I was complaining about. You know, the prosecutor did misstate my net worth at sentencing. He misstated it by in excess of $400,000. And I thought that that, you know, negatively impacted my sentence and all that. And I, and I realized, I go, no, I knocked the first domino down. Buck stops with me. I made a choice. And I'll tell you, inside prison, I felt freedom. No longer calling it a mistake accepting that responsibility and accepting extreme responsibility. Cause I also used to complain about some of the negative press I got. Well, you know what, if I didn't make that choice, that, that author wouldn't know the name Craig Stanlin. He would have never had an opportunity to write that article. 
the prosecutor never would have had an opportunity to misstate the net worth. This is all on me. And it was really a very liberating moment for me. It really, really was. It's that taking ownership that I think is so incredibly important. And it's it's really what defines my FS if they haven't taken ownership. And we have a couple, we have numerous um, uh, FFs, Jeff Grant, who, you know, he does wonderful work. And I love the story. You want to tell the audience the story of how you got connected with Jeff? So after I was arrested by the FBI, the October 1st, 2013, the government was actually in a shutdown on that day. So the agents, you know, gleefully told me that everybody arrested me that day for no, you know, no pay. Everybody volunteered to arrest me. Oh, nice. They, they got a good chuckle out of. But I say this because the FBI press office was actually closed. So it didn't hit the news. And I thought I had skated. But then when the government kicks back up, all of a sudden the press office is working and it hits the news. And my downstairs neighbor, I lived in a condominium complex and my 80-something-year-old downstairs neighbor got the local Connecticut paper. In, you know, I was on the front page. And he, he took, he took a, a gamble. He t- sent me a text and said, I'm so sorry that you're experiencing this, but I think you should speak to my friend Jeff Grant. And he said, you know, I hope I'm not intruding. I hope that you don't find this offensive. And I cannot... He has since he has since passed, which is is very sad. Um, but I can't thank him enough for for reaching out and offering that, if you will, olive branch of Jeff Grant because Jeff has been just a a tremendous support. You know, pre prison, during prison, and now after prison. You know, he he sees all of us through this massive journey, and it's a journey that really has no end. So I can't, I can't thank my neighbor enough and I can't thank Jeff enough. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've also been on James Altucher's, uh, I always butcher that, um, podcast. How was that? I mean, he, he's a big deal. He's, he is, so this is actually, I mean, the, if I was to give the full story about that, that would be like a full podcast unto itself. James is, I would say, one of my virtual mentors and a little bit of a hero quite honestly. My ex-wife's cousin sent me James's book, Choose Yourself. It was the first book that I received in prison. And Choose Yourself by James Altucher actually helped me make it through federal prison. And I had set a couple of goals in my life. I said, I would like to meet James. I was already writing the book. I said, I would love for him to write the blurb. And I would love I would love, love, love for him to write about me. And I'd love to appear on his podcast. And I'm glad to say that I consider him an acquaintance. I've been on his podcast. He did write the blurb for my book and he has written about me. He is the real deal. He is so nice. He's genuine. What you see on the podcast and what you read in his material, this isn't like, um, it's not airs. It's not this you know persona that he's created. created. He is the most authentic person that I know. And he's just been so generous um, to me throughout the years. That's, that's awesome. And choose yourself. I'll put that into the show notes. Um, Are there other books that you can kind of like say that helped you either pre, during, or post prison that you want to kind of give a shout out to? Oh, absolutely. This is, this is one of my, this is one of my favorite subjects. So in prison, it was, we said, choose yourself. 
than Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. I think that is, quite frankly, one of the most important books that's ever been written. And I think it should be mandatory reading for everyone. I think that is the largest perspective shifting book I have ever read. And I reread it every year. Ever since prison, I reread it every year. There are times when I walk by my bookshelf that I'll pull it off and I'll read some of my highlights just to just to remind myself of the message that that book contains. I also in prison liked Unbroken by Laura Hildebrand. Oh yeah. Which is also just an amazing perspective shifting book. Post-prison, I was introduced to stoicism, which is a huge component of my life. I practice stoicism and Buddhism, quite frankly, are the two philosophies that I really am drawn to. And within that stoicism realm is Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. The Gregory Hayes translation to me is just, there's so much power in there. This is, this is an inside look at the most powerful man in the world at that time. These, he had no intention of this book to be released to the public. He just wanted to, it was his journal. He'd actually, from what we know of Marcus, he'd be embarrassed that this book was out there and that people were reading about him and that it sold you know, millions of copies. But just to have that inside look at the, the struggles even he endured. And what I find remarkable is they're the same things that we contend with this, to this day written 2,600 years ago. And that's actually something that I still almost every morning read passages out of that. And then I will throw two more out if you don't mind. Yeah, I want to throw a fiction and one more nonfiction. The Tao Te Ching. It is, I believe, 88 verses, super short book. The verses are super short, but it is, it's by Lao Tzu. And I like the Stephen Mitchell translation has been my favorite translation of that. Just makes me think. It just makes me think there are, like I said, these short little passages and there are some I've read, I've reread this numerous times, huge fan of rereading. If I like a book, I reread it until it becomes part of me. And I've reread this a million times. I still don't understand half of it. And then when I reread some of the passages, I'm like, Oh, Oh, I get it now. It like, it just clicks and it just, it makes me think, which I love. I absolutely love. And the last book I'd like to reference, I want to throw a fiction book in there is The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. And I read that when I was in prison. That helped me, in a sense, create my book. Because when I was reading it, she writes so eloquently and so beautifully. It is astounding to me, but I would read certain passages And my gut told me, I said, I want to write that down in my own handwriting because I want to understand why she chose the words that she chose. And I want to understand why she chose them in that order. I want to understand her structure. And in doing that, it really helped inform my own writing. I didn't do it to emulate her, but I did it to understand word choice. And so those, those are, those are some of my favorites, but honestly, I could go on, I could blather on for an hour. (laughs) Oh my gosh. No, those are great. And I'll put those all in the show notes because what a great selection of them. And I mean, obviously I haven't been in prison, but reading would be, I would think like the savior oh, reading and writing. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's so much time 
in prison and it moves so slowly. So it's all about creating that routine and just really checking those days off. And for me, reading and writing was a huge component of that. I mean, just devouring books and in a sense, having that luxury of time to be able to, to do that. It's so hard outside of prison to be able to, you know, focus, to read for two hours a day. You know, I think Warren Buffett apparently reads for like five hours a day, but he also has a hundred billion dollars in the bank and may be able to, you know, afford a little bit of that time. Yeah, I'm happy now to put about a half an hour aside to make sure I, I do my best to read every day. I don't always do it, but it just, to escape the, the thinking and thought process of the everyday and to learn from somebody else, to be able to learn from, let's say somebody like Lao Tzu who lived thousands of years ago. You know, I love that. I love the idea. I also, you know, the Bhagavad Gita is a huge book that was written, I think 5,000 years ago and to be able to absorb this information that people created and has lasted for millennia. That boggles my mind. Well, and in reading your book, and I had time to read the book for before we, you know, did this. Um, I did this in my book also, the quotes at the beginning of the chapters. And you picked some really good ones. And I'm going to do read this one from the Dalai Lama. When we meet real tragedy in life, we can react in two ways, either by losing hope or falling into self-destructive habits or by using the challenge to find our inner strength. And I just love that. Like, I mean, you have tons of great quotes. Uh, Do you have a favorite? You know, I don't even know if I used in the book and I'm going to get it wrong, but my favorite really comes from Viktor Frankl. And that is, oh my God, I'm going to get this wrong. The pressure's on. It's building. (laughs) When everything is taken from a man. Oh God, what is it? When everything is taken from a man, he still has the freedom to choose his own his own attitude in any given circumstance. And I'm getting that totally wrong. And I apologize for butchering that, but I just really think it's everything, everything can be taken from a man, but the last of the great human freedoms, the ability to choose how one responds in any given situation. That's a little more accurate. I still didn't get it quite right, but that to me is my, that's, that's one of my favorite quotes And it just really speaks to not only prison, but also life. And it goes back to what we were saying. We circle back to choice. Yeah. We always, we always have a choice and to be able to connect with that is so, so super powerful. And I hope you don't mind. I'll add one more quote because it's actually tattooed on my body, but uh, the, the impediment to action advances the action What stands in the way becomes the way. And that's Marcus Aurelius. Ooh. I like that. Oh, that is, that is good. You know, this is one thing I say, and people don't believe it until it happens to them. But whether you're a victim of a fraud or you have committed a fraud, when everything is done, I truly think there is light at the end of the tunnel. And it is, I don't want to say meant to happen, but it changes a person. And I think even as a victim, I have a victim who lost over a half million dollars. And when they were in the middle of it, it was devastating. But actually, as it turns out, 
she ended up being vulnerable, reaching out to a customer of theirs for a loan. And the customer has ended up giving them way more work than they ever would have gotten because they went hat in hand. And ironically, he had been a victim of embezzlement very early in his career and he knew how devastating it was. So to like, I mean, no one's going to say it was great to go to prison, but there, there are positives. Like, do you think you would still be happy working a regular, you know, I'm going to say 60 hour gig job, you know, punching in, punching out. Would you be happy? So a couple of things here. Uh, what you just said is totally in line with the Dalai Lama quote. She, that person could have a victim of a fraud, could have just gone into despair and self-destructive and instead was vulnerable and courageous in asking for help. So that just makes me think of that. And then I actually, so another, show you how much I love stoicism. Another tattoo that I have is Amor Fati, which is love of fate. And that basically is to not hide or conceal or wish for anything to be different than other than it is, but to love it. And I have grown to love my prison experience because it's molded who I am today. And there is nothing in the world that I would exchange for who I am today. The mindset that I have, the peace that I have, the joy that I have, level of creativity, the gratitude, wouldn't exchange that for a world. And that would not have happened had I not gone to prison, I didn't like my job when I had it. I didn't like that gig. I liked what the gig could afford me. It was, mean, you know, honestly, it was meaningless work. Now I do work that I feel actually has meaning. I've, I've been, it's happened more than once. And this is probably one of the most humbling and perspective shifting things that I think can happen to somebody. I've had people reach out either blog posts that I've written or my TED talk or my book who have said, you saved my life. I was planning on how I was going to kill myself. And then I watched your TED or I read your book or I read this blog post. And they literally have said, I was planning how I was going to kill myself. If I wished that I didn't go to prison, what does that mean for those people? Yeah. That's a bit of a, that's a bit of a mind twist. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the whole making lemonade out of lemons, I know that's cheesy, but it's, it's on both sides. It's on the victims and it's also on the perpetrator because I have a woman who stole $250,000 from a medical practice. She's a waitress. She says she's never been happier in her life. Like It's, it's amazing. It made me, you know, it's making me think of like lottery winners, totally different than committing fraud or anything like that, but lottery winners who lose everything in a couple of years and then find themselves actually happy. But it's, you know, it's just this idea, this false idea that money and things are going to fill us from the inside. There is absolutely nothing external that's ever going to fill us internally. It's impossible. One of my first cases was two sisters who had won the lottery. And oh my gosh, they showed up for grand jury. They had go-go boots on. It was the cutest thing. They show up in their little convertible. And, you know, by this time they were living back in the mobile home and they both said, we have the time of our lives, but this, they've been ripped off by their banker. 
like their trusted banker. And they had the best sort of attitude because they kind of were like, well, we had it good for a couple of years, but you know what? We're still having fun and we're back living in the mobile home. What an amazing attitude. And I think, I mean, that just goes to money doesn't buy happiness, but it's, it's not until you actually experience it in some way that you learn that it's very easy for us to sit here and say that, but until you actually experience it, how do you process that? It's, I feel like we're just so conditioned as a society to believe that money and things are going to make us happy. So when you hear somebody say that, they're like, blah, 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 easy for you to say, you know, you had everything, you know, you're, you had, you know, blah, you know, all these things. And I'm just, I'm, I'm just telling you, it's true. Money doesn't buy happiness. Money buys money. Money buys a sense of security. You know, if we're looking at like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, the ability to put a roof over your head and to put food in the fridge and to have your basic needs met. Obviously, money does that. And that when you have that sense of security, then you can go out and pursue meaning in different ways and whatever that means for you. But if you don't have those things, that's a much different conversation. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine saying to, um, Uh, my younger self or anyone's younger self. So you could go to prison for two years and come out and be the happiest you've ever been. I don't think anyone would take that choice. Like they just, they don't think it can happen. Cannot see it. You can't see it. And an interesting thing. So back to Jeff and the, and the group, you know, the white collar support group, there are people that are in all various stages of the process um, recently indicted all the way to being out for 20 years. The people who are in the middle of it right now, it's very easy to say, in, you know, w- what we try to do is to say, you know, it's going to be okay. Don't know what that okay is, looks like, but it's going to be okay. And I know Jeff told me that when I was in the middle of it and I thought he was friggin' nuts. I thought he was crazy. And, you know, I can see it today. It's very hard to process that when you're in the middle of it. It's so hard to process that. It's hard. It's, it's impossible to believe because it feels like that, that shame and that guilt and that embarrassment and that uncertainty and the fear. You know, I remember thinking that's how I'm going to feel for the rest of my life. This is permanent. This is, this is, this is it. This is how I'm going to feel forever. And that's not a nice place to be. Well, and you know, I've said this before that white collar or pink collar criminals, they don't have experience with the criminal justice system. So they don't have friends who've gone to prison. So it's not like being in the wire and everyone knows you're gonna get your turn in the barrel. And it's just, you'll have three hots and a cot. But when you come from, um, I'm gonna say security, safety, privilege, and you don't know anyone who has been in prison, you can't imagine that you're going to survive it. I don't think. Oh, not at all. Not at all. Before I actually met Jeff, after I was arrested, my attorney basically told me, you know, obviously I had hope for like um, probation. You know, I had hope for some, you know, something that I wasn't going to go to prison. My attorney was basically like, you're going to prison. You know, he, he was pretty, pretty clear about that. I didn't know there were such a things as camps. You know, I didn't realize that there were different levels. I thought it was going to the prison I saw in Oz. I am five foot four at the time of my arrest. I was 140 pounds. You know, by the time I actually went into prison, I went down to 109 pounds. But I'm, you know, I'm this tiny little human. I was like, I'm going to get raped and beaten every single day. 
that's what I that's what I was expecting. Thankfully, Jeff told me the different security levels, and he's like, based on what you did, you should go to a camp. But even still, I didn't know what that looked like. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't have he could tell me, but without the actual experience, I didn't know what that meant. And you really have to. The only way out is through. You know, I mean, that's, yeah, that's really, oh, I wish I could take credit for that. Uh, I know JK Rowling has written written that. Um, I think a couple other people have said that, but, <laughs> you know, being a writer, I want to make sure I give proper attribution to every, everybody out there. I can't take credit for a good quote if it's not mine, but yeah, I mean, it really is the only way out is through. Um, so you said you don't watch a lot of television. You listen to lots of podcasts. And we both said that after we listen to podcasts, we probably buy books. Um, but did you ever watch Billions or Succession? I So for a while, I definitely did not watch TV. Now I'm starting to watch a little bit more, but I did watch Billions. And it was really interesting. So what was the first season? It was a couple of years ago. Yeah. I Still, I was on the other side of the shame, or so I thought. But when I was watching it, the first season of Billions takes place. They actually went to a lot of restaurants that I went to. I recognized the restaurants. He, Bobby, was modeled. I dealt with all the largest financial institutions in the world and the largest hedge funds in the world. He was modeled after my clients. I, I could see individually who they were who they were modeling him after. And those were my clients. And I say all this because it stung. It it definitely hurt when they raided his home and just dealing with all the things that he was dealing with and all those memories of the restaurants I went to. First season really stung. Then I got over it and I I enjoyed it. But I'm not going to lie. That first season was, that was a tough one. And my friend who recommended it said, how are you enjoying it? I said, kind of hurts a little bit. And her eyes just got really big. And she's like, I'm so sorry. I didn't even think of that. I just thought you would enjoy it. Well, um, so are you team Bobby or team Chuck? Oh, that's a good one. Um, you know, I'd have to actually, you know, I mean, is this going to surprise people? Is this going to put me in a bad light? But I got to go with Bobby because I think Chuck, because I think, you know, Chuck's not much better. Well, and you hold people in public positions to, higher and like you know bobby's a crook so you don't expect i mean when you know he crooks you're like yeah well that's expected but when chuck crooks and he crooks you know it it, it's so people are pretty surprised when i say i'm team bobby i mean i don't like him but if i had to choose i'd pick bobby he's actually he's because of what you just said he's more authentic yeah you know, it's not condoning the behavior, but it's more just in alignment with the character as opposed to putting on one face to the public and then doing all the stuff behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. So have you watched Succession? No, I have not. And I don't even know if I've heard of that one. Where is that? So it's about, it's I think on HBO, but it's okay. about a really rich family. And what's interesting, my son and I have this conversation because we both watch, we've watched both. And it's like on Billions, we like the characters. There's not one character on succession that we like. And it's a very dysfunctional family. So it's kind of interesting. So everyone says it's really, really good, but I don't, I don't like any of the characters on succession, but unfortunately I think it's probably pretty, you know, there, there's some truth to it in highly rich 
dysfunctional families. So they're all throwing each other under the bus. They're all narcissists. It's, it's kind of crazy. You might want to watch it because then you might feel really good about yourself and your family. <laughs> I will, I will definitely check it out, but I think there's something to be said for that for like any television show. If you can't connect with at least one of the characters, it's really, I mean, it could be a comedy, you know, but if I can't connect or I don't like any of the characters, it's very easy to fall out of it. Okay. You know, you're going to have that, even if, even if you don't like the character, but there's something you're drawn to, if you just don't flat out like them and you just, there's no, no association that you can tie to that. I get very lost on that. You know, I want to have, I want to have some kind of back and forth with them, even though it's, you know, a 2d screen and I'm sitting on my couch eating popcorn. Well, then this just popped into my head. Would you ever write fiction? So I have an idea for a fiction book. I've had it for, oh my God, 15 years. And I actually had to go through everything I went through to be able to write this book. I tried in the past to write it. And I don't even want to give the plot away, but it involves basically losing everything. And I I had this well before I lost everything. It's going to happen. I just actually started writing book number two. And- Book number three or book number four, I wanna I wanna take a stab at this at this fiction. I, I would love to, I would love to do that, but that's a different beast all to itself to create the characters, to to watch the characters evolve into whatever they evolve into. But I wanna, I do wanna take that challenge on. So how was your, and I, I'll be honest, because I'm all about honesty, I have not yet watched your TED talk, but I will watch it before I, you know, put this up on the podcast. How did you like doing the TED Talk? Like, you know, tell us about your TED Talk. So I'm going to rewind to prison. When, when I started realizing, you know, when I, when I took responsibility and I started turning my life around, I examined those choices that I made and I realized that they were fear-based choices. So my intuition told me that I needed to write down my fears and conquer them. Uh, I actually used in my, in my journal, I used the word execute. I need to execute my fears one by one. My biggest fear is public speaking. So there in prison, I set a goal to conquer my fear of public speaking. And the biggest stage I could think of was the TED stage. It took me five years to, to deliver that talk. And it was one of the most cathartic, amazing journeys of my life. When I, I rehearsed over a hundred times, because I wanted it to be a part of me and I didn't want it to sound rehearsed. So I quit literally, it was about 110 times in 30 days that I rehearsed that talk. When I got up on stage, couldn't see anybody. It was about 165 people in the audience. We were at Mass Mocha, which is this, this insanely gorgeous museum in North Adams, Massachusetts. But I really couldn't see anybody except for the front row, which my father, my stepmother, and my friend Christine, I could really only see them. I had the microphone, I started speaking, and I'll tell you, it felt like 30 seconds later, I was at the end. And in my brain, I go, oh my God, I'm here already. And I get off stage to a big round of applause. The next speaker was coming on and we had to remain quiet because they're recording everything. So I didn't get any feedback from anybody. I'm sitting there, I go, I was on stage for 30 seconds. I missed everything. I screwed up my whole talk. I blew it. I blew my chance. I literally spoke for 30 seconds. And then my wisdom of my brain goes, no dummy, that's silly. You weren't up there for 30 seconds. You spoke for about a minute. And I literally thought I spoke for about a minute. I went into like this fugue state of just pure in the moment, 
and pure flow. And then when I got to speak to people afterwards, somebody was funny who had seen my rehearsal. I go, I, I, I think I missed a ton of parts. He goes, Craig, not only did you not miss anything, you ad-libbed and added things. And I said, I did what now? And I had to wait for it to come out on YouTube to see what I added because I didn't even know what I added. But it was just this, it was an amazing journey. It taught me something really, really, really important. It's not the destination, it is the journey. It was who I had to become in order to get on the TED stage and to deliver that talk. That was the true reward. The talk itself, icing on the cake. And I actually, in conjunction with my second book, I'm going to, I hope to do another one. I have a dream to do a TED talk. Ooh, let's, let's, we don't have to unpack it now, but I'm, I'm offering you um, offline. If you want to um, talk about it, I'll tell you about my process. I'll tell you how to do it and we can, we can break everything down. Happy to help you with that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. It's a dream. And someone just posted on Twitter. Um, what's a conference that you want to do and, you know, and that you either have or haven't done. And for me, it isn't a conference. It's Ted. Just so interesting. Okay. I'll watch it and I will put a link in the show notes. So um, as we close out here, what can you say? And, you know, it is a primarily a woman audience that we have, but not all, definitely not all. Um, what can you say? I don't, I don't want to say like, um, you know, go off and do this and all will be great. But what's a piece of wisdom that you want to give to people that are in sort of the investigative world? If they run into someone like you or like, is there, is there a part of the investigative process where you're like, oh God, that was just so messed up or like, you know, you said you wanted to go meet with the agent, but you can't because they're past. Um, I have a big thing about empathy investigations that you don't pound on them. So what can you say about your experience when it came to like the actual investigation? I want to actually say that I think everybody treated me fairly well. There were some things that, you know, I would love were a little bit different. You know, some things were said that I think were highly inappropriate. But what I would actually say, and this is interesting because it's something that I work on on myself. And it's something I've been thinking about for the past couple of months is we as humans have a tendency to create an entire puzzle. We know what the entire puzzle looks like when we're missing a tremendous amount of pieces. And that is something I would say to any investigator is our human nature is to close the loop on thought, is to take all of our past evidence of things and form that complete picture. But to really step back and say that we don't know who that person truly is. We don't have all the information. And the FBI, let's say, has a tremendous amount of information. There's no ifs, ands, or buts, but they don't have it all. And to form this picture and to wear blinders when looking at an individual, not just in investigation, but I think in our everyday life, to look at somebody who's homeless, to look at somebody who has committed a crime or whatever it may be, to form this full puzzle and say, I know you. No, you don't. That's what I would say. Oh, I like that. We have so many biases that, you know, confirmation bias is huge. And I know as an investigator, 
just get the evidence that shows that they did it. You know, that's the easiest route. Don't get the evidence that shows why they did it or, you know, yeah. So I, I would, that's a great way to end. And yeah, I, I, I love that because you know what? We are all people. And good and that, people can make bad choices and bad people can make good choices. That's absolutely right. And I, I think that is, and to, to judge someone for the remainder of their life on a terrible choice that they paid a very significant price for, you know, I would, if I hope you don't mind, I know we're wrapping up and I just would like to, you know, offer this to somebody who does form that complete puzzle and label somebody something. Think about your worst choice. Maybe it wasn't illegal, but it's something that fills you with shame. I really want somebody to like connect with this. It fills you with shame. And you don't want anybody to know about it, or maybe a few people do. And when you think about it, it could be 20 years ago, and you still get that burning sensation in your cheeks. Well, how about this? You're that for the rest of your life. Yeah. Because that's what you do to somebody else. And you wouldn't like it to happen to you. So don't do it to somebody else. Yeah. What what a great way to end because, yeah, we, yeah. That was so good. Thank you so much, Craig. I want to have you back. And um, I mean, I want all my guests back, of course, but like, I'm looking forward to seeing what next you have to write. And also for maybe you to interview me about my eventual TED talk. So thank you. Kelly, thank you so much for having me on. This has been an absolute blast. And definitely, I mean, offline, let's talk about that TED talk. I would love to help you with that. Craig was so great and so easy to interview. His candor, professionalism, and hope for the future is inspiring. His TEDx talk is amazing, and I hope you listen to it. I have a new idea brewing, and I'm hoping Craig will be a part of it. Stay tuned. I'm not sure about next week's guest or podcast, but hopefully some ideas will work out. I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thank you again for your time.